If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless the reading of his word. A few weeks ago, we made the point that the parables of Jesus are not meant to simply be nice stories with religious morals at the end. They are meant to be much, much more than that. We quoted Albert Moeller who said they are meant to be spiritual hand grenades. They are meant to blow up our expectations and reveal hidden attitudes and lifestyles that stand contrary to God's will and to God's word. And Jesus once again tells that kind of parable in the verses before us. It begins with two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And for those that would have been hearing this story all those many years ago when Jesus first told this parable, when they heard about a Pharisee and a tax collector, they would have immediately had in their minds a hero and a villain for this story. The hero would have been the Pharisee. Remember that back in their day, they were the back to the Bible men. They wanted more than anything for God's law to be honored, for God's law to be read and published, and for God's law to be obeyed. They had a reputation for godliness. The villain would have been the tax collector. Now, I know many of you don't like the IRS, but things were even different back then. You'll remember that that the Romans did not, when they conquered a people and they absorbed them into the empire, they did not collect taxes directly, but worked with local people to collect the taxes. Those local people would be able to collect pretty much anything that they wanted as long as Rome got what they expected and then they would keep the rest for themselves. And everyone knew this was their job and so expected them to, to, to take a little extra for compensation, but many tax collectors took much, much more. And the whole system was corrupt with many of the collectors uh, being quite wealthy. They were despised and hated across the empire, but all the more so for the Jews who would have seen Jewish tax collectors as being traitors to their own people working with the Roman oppressors. Some rabbis would have taught that those Jewish tax collectors should be considered unclean and anything in their house to be unclean because they so associated with Gentiles. So these were the stereotypes in the mind. As soon as Jesus says, two men went up to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector, everyone went, oh yeah, we get it. We understand. We know what's coming. But Jesus turns all of those stereotypes, all of those expectations on their head by this parable. And I hope he will do the same for us today. It's important to understand that this parable is not just some cultural artifact, but here Jesus provides for us. He teaches us the very way of salvation, 
not just for people in his day, but for us as well. And he does it by presenting us with these two prayers. So this is what we want to look at this morning. First, we see the prayer of a righteous man. We see the prayer of a righteous man. That's the Pharisee in this parable. He thinks of himself as a righteous man. Others around him would have thought of him as a righteous man. And from the way he prays, we have an open window through which we can see what his righteousness looks like. First, we see that his righteousness is moral. His righteousness is moral. Jesus says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What does this tell us about the Pharisee? He was a moral man. He was not an extortioner. He was honest in his business dealings with others. He didn't cheat or steal from them. He was just in his dealings. He was also moral in the context of his marriage. Unlike the man sitting next to him, the tax collector who was known for his sin, the Pharisee had a moral righteousness. More than that, we see from his words that his righteousness is religious. The Pharisee's righteousness is religious. The Pharisee prayed saying, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisee's morality was not one that just came up from his culture or from something that he had in his own mind. It was directly tied to his religious observance and his religious identity. That's what we see in the fastings and the tithings and him even being present at the temple to pray. These things were acts of religious devotion, not unlike what we are doing here this morning. It shows the Pharisee was part of the people of God, seeking to follow God's instructions about worship. Moreover, he was zealous in his expression of religious piety. The law only prescribed one day of fasting and prayer on the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about much more later. This man, notice, does not just fast once a year, but twice a week. Likewise, the law required only a tithe of certain possessions of individuals in Israel. But he generously gave a tenth of everything to the Lord. Frankly, he puts to shame most Christian Americans in that. The Pharisee's righteousness is seen in his morality. It's also seen in his religiousness. But third, we can see in his words also an attitude of thankfulness. His righteousness is thankful. The righteousness of the Pharisee is thankful. Notice again how he begins his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Now look carefully here at what he says and at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm thankful that I'm saved because I'm good. That's not what he said. He says, no, God, I thank you that I am righteous, that I am the way that I am. In other words, he is giving God the credit for making him righteous, for making him to be the moral and religious man that he is. The Pharisee is not a man, at least in this parable, he is not one who thinks he can make himself righteous without God's help. In other words, he is not an overt legalist. He doesn't think, I don't need God, I will will press on, I will devote myself to righteousness, and I will achieve something for myself. That's not who he is. He is thankful to God. He knows whatever righteousness he has has come to him as a gift of God. Now, just here, let's stop and let's think for a minute 
about this man and what he was like. Frankly, if, if this is all that we had, we, we would need more people like this in our church and in our culture. Here's a man marked by moral purity. He doesn't, he doesn't cheat on his taxes. He doesn't lie to his neighbor. He doesn't take advantage of others. And just in the face of the, the moral crisis today involving marriage and fidelity that has been spawned by the dirge of pornography, here is a man who is faithful to his wife. A rare thing these days. And all this morality flows from his religious devotion. He's not a man who sits on the sidelines, but understands he is an integral part of the people of God. He is pursuing God in fasting. He is glorifying God in tithing. He is honoring God in prayer. And if this is all we knew of this man, we would, we would cry out, God, give us a hundred more for this city and for this church. But this is not the whole picture of the righteousness of this Pharisee. In fact, all that has come before takes on a different, less desirous hue when we see that in the Pharisee's prayer, it is also revealed that his righteousness is deficient. His righteousness is deficient. Listen again to what Jesus says. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, if it's true that the mark of self-centeredness can be measured by how often one refers to himself or herself in the course of a conversation, this man wins a prize. He gets a gold star ribbon because in no less than two sentences, he uses the pronoun I five times and only mentions God once. There is an amazing, amazing egotism there considering he's offering a prayer to God. More importantly, notice what is missing from this prayer. Though there is thankfulness for the grace of righteousness given by God, there is no sense of sin or the need for forgiveness. He gives no indication that he is aware of the imperfections of his righteousness and the need for cleansing and mercy. In this way, St. Augustine was right to compare him to a patient who goes to the doctor. Augustine, in his commentary, his sermon on this passage said, he's like a man who goes to the doctor telling the doctor all the things that are working right in his body rather than telling him, admitting, these are the things that are not working right and I need your care as a physician. So you imagine today someone making his appointment, going to show up at the doctor. And he says, Doc, my, my, my joints are fine. They're, they're feeling great. Uh, the blood pressure is taken. It looks good. His cholesterol is down. And he says, I mean, th things are going great. But all the while, he's suffering from gout. He has a broken foot and, and has chronic constant headaches. How ridiculous would it be to not seek the help for, those re for remedying those problems by simply owning up to them, admitting them. But how much more ridiculous for us not to acknowledge the spiritual ailments of our sinful heart wherein we need a much more desperate and divine remedy. Now at this point we have to remember how Luke has framed this parable. He said it in verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice first of all, Jesus is not simply talking about people, bashing them. He is talking to them. He is challenging them to see their sin. 
What kind of sin? The sin of trusting in themselves and therefore treating others with contempt. This is where the Pharisee in the parable went off the rails in his righteousness. He began well. He recognized that his righteousness was a gift from God. We we should all do that. And to whatever progress and maturity and growth God has given to us, it has come from his hand. It is his gift. We should be thankful for that. But the problem is, the problem is, he believed that righteousness was sufficient to save him. That was the problem. It's not. Our righteousness, no matter how much God has wrought within us, it is not sufficient to save us. The Pharisee is looking at his own righteousness and thinking it can justify him. It can make him right with God. It can save him, but it can't. This man will never be saved by trusting in his own righteousness, and neither will we. That is why Jesus not only presents this problem of of the the prayer of a righteous man, but also the solution, the, the way forward, the example for how to find justification. He tells us not just about the prayer of a righteous person, but also the prayer of a repentant man, a repentant person. The prayer of a righteous man and the prayer of a repentant man. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Just as the prayer of the the Pharisee revealed the nature of his righteousness, so also the prayer of this tax collector reveals the nature of his repentance. In his repentance, the tax collector displays humility. He displays humility. Notice his posture in prayer. Jesus says he came to the temple, but he prayed standing far off, not even lifting up his eyes to heaven, but simply beating his chest as he prayed. You notice that even before he starts talking, his head is bowed, his eyes are on the ground. He cannot even look up to heaven as he prays because he feels unworthy to do so. Now, we don't know for sure that the typical Jewish position for prayer that we see throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, was for one to stand with hands raised up in praise to God, eyes open, gazing towards heaven, asking for God to come down and bless. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But you notice that's not typically the way we pray today. And some believe it is, in fact, the very example here that Jesus holds up of a head that is bowed, of eyes that that feel unworthy to look to heaven, hands brought in close to the body. This is the, the, the beginnings of the pattern of Christian prayer. Now, why does he why does he stand far off from the temple? Well, remember what the temple was. It was the the visible manifestation of God's presence among His people. It doesn't mean that God is not everywhere all the time like the Bible teaches over and over again, but what it means is God was manifesting His presence especially in that temple place. Therefore, it was a privilege for Israel to be able to to gather around and worship God together. But it also carried a sense of awe and expectation. We were a sinful people approaching a holy God in coming to the temple. And people still have that that feeling today, don't they? 
that they associate with church as the people of God gathered together uh, with the, the, the presence of God's Spirit. They don't want to come because there's a sense of God's presence there and they feel unworthy to be a part of that. And such was the tax collector in our passage. He knew his sin and was therefore humble before God. But notice secondly that in his repentance, the tax collector not only displayed humility, but he also desires mercy. He desires mercy. Jesus says the tax collector stood far off from the temple, not even lifting his eyes to heaven, but simply beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't flaunt his righteousness because he doesn't have any. He doesn't make light of his sin because he's in the presence of a holy God. He doesn't make a case for why God should save him because there's no evidence to support it. Instead, he simply begs for the one thing that he knows he needs, mercy from the living and holy God. What's interesting and, in fact, essential that we understand, though, in this parable is that when he says, be merciful to me, he is not using the normal word that we find in the New Testament for mercy. Instead, he is using a verbal form of a noun that is translated in some key verses with the word propitiation. And for some of you, you know why that's important. Others of you have no idea. You've never heard that word, not a common English word. Why is that important? It's important because... Of this reason, that's what takes place at the temple that he is standing in front of. Propitiation for sins. Propitiation means the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. Remember in the Old Testament, God established the, the temple for his people. And in the, in the heart of that temple was a golden ark that contained, among other things, the commandments of God. The Ten Commandments are represented as a summary all of the Old Testament law. And God manifested his presence, his, his Shekinah glory hovering over that ark, that, that box in the temple. Now that was important because as the presence of God was hovering over the ark, symbolically, God would look down into the ark and what would he see? He would see the law, what was being broken every day all around him, the law. Therefore, what did the law prescribe for those who broke it? Death, eternal punishment, hell forever. So, so as God dwells in the midst of his people and manifesting his glory, he's looking down and he sees the law. He's looking out all around. Remember that Israel was told to encamp literally around so that the temple was at the center of their society. God is looking all around in 360 degrees. He sees sinners who deserve wrath. So how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Between the glory of God's holy presence and the broken holy law of God, there was the mercy seat on top of the ark. And there, once a year, the priest would come in and pour out the blood of sacrifice on that mercy seat to make propitiation for the sins of Israel. You remember how it went? First, the priest for his own sins, that he might be worthy to, to offer sacrifice for others. He would have to take a bull and he would begin by placing his hands on the head of that bull, symbolically transferring the guilt and, and, and penalty of his own sin onto that bull. And then he would slaughter the bull and he would offer it as a sacrifice and sprinkle its blood so that atonement might be made for his own sins. And then he would take a goat and he would place his hands on that goat now, not for his sins, but symbolically, prayerfully transferring the guilt and the shame and the punishment that was due the entire nation for their sins onto that goat. And then as God commanded in Leviticus 16, 
He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil of the temple before the Holy of Holies and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sin. So now, when God looks down and sees broken commandments, and He looks around and sees a sinful people, what does He see? He sees the blood of sacrifice that atones for sin. He he sees an offering that appeases His wrath towards His people. Propitiation has taken place through that sacrificial offering. That is the only hope of the tax collector in this prayer. He knows he sinned. He knows he deserves wrath, but he also knows God has made provision for that wrath. So he asks for mercy. Literally, he says, God, be mercy seated towards me. He asks God, he's standing, remember, he's standing in front of the temple, far off, unworthy to approach, but he's looking towards that temple. That's where his hope lies, that the blood has been poured out in sacrifice, and therefore God's wrath will be turned away from his sins. Remember who's telling this parable? It's Jesus, and he is putting in the mouth of this tax collector a theology of atonement. Jesus is telling us how he can be saved, how we can be saved, even today. How we can be mercy-seated by God, how we can find mercy, not following the example of the Pharisee and trusting in our own righteousness, but in the righteous sacrifice, the mercy that God provides. That's the problem here. That's the the reason why the Pharisee was not justified. He was not looking outside of himself, but to himself. Yes, he thanked God for the righteousness, but then he trusted in that righteousness to make him right with God, to make him justified before God, and it wouldn't work. It would never be enough. And what does the tax collector do? He doesn't look inside, but outside to the provision of God to make him right. Prayer of the Pharisee ultimately looked to himself. The prayer of the tax collector completely looked to God. That's why he went down justified. That is, declared righteous and acceptable before God. That's what justification means. Now again, think about those first listeners. Think about those first listeners as they're hearing Jesus describe these two prayers. They probably thought to themselves, look at that Pharisee. What What a godly example that we need today in Israel. And then he went on to talk about the tax collector and they thought, oh, that tax collector, he'd better call out for mercy because he needs it. He deserves wrath. He deserves fire and brimstone. He deserves earth cracking open and swallowing him. He doesn't deserve to be anywhere near that temple. They're simply being affirmed with their own ideas. But then just as Jesus, as it were, set that spiritual hand grenade out in the parable, he gets to the end and he pulls the pen. I tell you, this man... This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says, this man, the second man, the tax collector, the sinner, the one that you hate and despise and think is nothing worthy of anything but judgment, he went down justified. And the other did not. The the righteous man was not justified before God. Suddenly every preconceived notion, every wrong-headed thinking, every spiritual blind theology explodes before their eyes at Jesus' words. 
As Pastor Jeff Thomas explains, the tax collector received righteousness from God as a gift while the Pharisee thought he would parade his righteousness before the world and God as an achievement. The tax collector came to the temple as a self-confessed sinner, but he went home justified. The religious Pharisee came to the temple virtuous and went home condemned. So what about us today? How are we seeking to be justified before God? Do you notice how deceptively subtle the mistake of the Pharisee was? I mean, he was doing everything right, but it came down to where his trust was. He was even thanking God for the righteousness that was cultivated in him. He was not a legalist, and yet he trusted in his righteousness rather than the righteousness that God would provide. Is that what we're doing this morning? Are we trusting in the work that God is doing in us rather than the work he has done outside of us? Many, many years ago, Isaac Watts wrote a beautiful hymn called Not All the Blood of Beasts. And in that hymn, Watts imagines himself walking up to Christ before he goes to the cross, kneeling down and like that high priest, putting his hands on the head of Jesus, seeing the transference of his guilt and his shame and the wrath that he deserves onto him as the sacrifice for his sins. He imagines and knows that he needs a substitute to bear his sin. But rather than any mere animal, Watts looks to Jesus as his mercy seat. He looks to Christ as his propitiation, the atoning sacrifice he needs. And that's what Jesus wants us to do today. Remember, Luke has written this gospel in light of everything that Jesus would do, including the cross And Jesus himself did and taught in light of all that he would do, including the cross. This is why Jesus puts in the words, uh, in in the mouth of the words, the tax collector, not just just generic mercy, but propitiation uh, from the mercy of God. The, The mercy seating, the atoning sacrifice that provides mercy. Christ knows that he himself will one day become the mercy seat for the salvation of his people. And later in the New Testament, all of this is taught with even greater clarity. Hebrews 10 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God command that? How can Hebrews now say it, 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 was, it was no good? He doesn't say it was not good for anything. But what he said was, full atonement could not be made by them. It's just animals. How could the blood of an animal substitute for a human soul before God? They were effective, but only temporarily. They only held back God's wrath. They did not fully and finally propitiate. That's why it was offered year after year after year after year. Hebrews goes on to say, though, that Christ was offered for all time as a single sacrifice for sins so that God will remember our sins and lawless deeds no more. Where does the tax collector, where does Watts, where do we find the righteousness that we need for salvation? That's what justification is all about. And the answer is Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And again, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, 
Christ who became for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, so today, do not look to your own righteousness, for it will never be enough to bring you to God. It will never be enough to justify you before Him. Instead, follow the example of that tax collector. Look outside yourself for mercy. Look to Christ for atonement and righteousness. And even when God works righteousness in you, even when by His grace He sanctifies you, He continually sets you apart that you grow in holiness before Him, never allow yourself to be prideful like the Pharisee here, looking down with conceit on others. Look to Christ in humility, remembering that He alone allows you to stand righteous before God. And if you do that, if you look to Christ and to Christ alone, then you, you will be able to sing like Watts. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine, while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burden thou didst bear while hanging on the cursed tree. I know my guilt was there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse remove. We bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. Father, that is our joyful song this morning our sober but joyful song if we have looked to Christ and are trusting not even in the goodness that you produce within us today, but in the righteousness provided in Christ and in Christ alone. God, a righteousness that is alien to us, that is foreign to us, but is nevertheless counted as our own when we trust in Him. In, in Him, a sacrifice whereby all of your wrath against our sins has been propitiated. Father, we rejoice to have Christ as our mercy seat. May we not slide into the trap of the Pharisee and begin to trust in ourselves. May those that are here, those that do not know you, those that, that have come to hear your teaching, to experience life among your people, may they not make the mistake of believing that doing good and righteous and religious things is what makes them right with you. May they see that Christ and Christ alone is what makes us right with you. Father, we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.